Well, he walked into what is a very low F in terms of uh, the effort to make peace between Israelis and Palestinians. The reality is that uh, there's been no direct negotiations between the two sides uh, for a couple of years, at least since 2014. While their, uh, the security elements continue to cooperate, there's no real discussion between at the political level, and there hasn't been. There's a deep level of disbelief between the Israeli public and the Palestinian public. So the context for peacemaking is not good. The, the gap on the core issues is, is very wide, meaning issues like Jerusalem and refugees and borders and security. And the psychological gap has probably never been wider in the time that I've been working on this issue for to 30 years. Yeah, and, and most recently you served as a special assistant to President Obama on, on these issues. Why is it that we're at this point with Middle East negotiations? Is it a lack of interest on the U.S.'s part, on the, the Obama administration's part for the last several years? Is it just the tensions in the Middle East right now? What, what are the factors at play? Well, there's a couple of factors. One is that Secretary Kerry made an effort for nine months, but it was really built on a kind of premise that he was going to solve it in nine months and didn't really have a, a backup plan in the event that that he couldn't. And the problem, whenever you set up a, a choice that is we're going to solve it or we're going to do nothing, inevitably you end up doing nothing. And in the Middle East, one thing we've learned is when they're vacuums, the worst forces fill it. And in this case, uh, the worst forces of disbelief on each side have come to dominate, so much so that in 2015, in the last Israeli election, the Zionist Union, the center-left party, didn't even... But it didn't even use the word peace in its campaign because it knew it had no credibility at all with the Israeli public and it was naive. So that explains partly where we are. The other part is the region itself. Uh, the What's going on in Syria, what's seen in Iraq, what's in Yemen, uh, the Iranian effort to use Shia militias. If you're sitting in Israel and you've withdrawn from uh, Lebanon unilaterally, you withdrew from Gaza. Uh, and you didn't get peace of security in, in response to either of those withdrawals. And you look at the region, small wonder that the Israeli public has become much more skeptical about what's possible. Now, that's all the negative. What is positive, and this is one of the things that President Trump could try to play upon, and certainly, at least in a general way, he made a reference to this on his trip, uh, there is a level of cooperation between the Israelis and the Sunni Arab states below the radar screen. It's below the radar screen because of the Palestinian issues, but there is a level of cooperation that is quite real and quite tangible, even if not visible, between Israel and the Sunni Arab states. And that could be a basis in which to try to bring the Arabs into this, uh, not to take the place of the Palestinians, but to perhaps give cover for the Palestinians to take steps that otherwise would be very difficult for them to take, and also to give cover to the Israelis, because the Israeli public, as I said, has such disbelief about the Palestinians that they feel if you make a concession to the Palestinians, you get nothing in return. But if you can get something in return from the Arabs, that might make it worth it. So that's sort of where the President Trump is starting. That's sort of where his, on day one, the situation he was walking into for the last uh, few months, how has he been handling the situation, especially given his trip this week uh, over to the Middle East, including uh, stops in Israel and Palestine? Well, I think that he's 
you know, what you've seen is an effort to signal that he cares about this issue. He wants to try to deal with it. He says it's the ultimate deal, and he thinks he can get it done where others have not. He has come to Israel from Saudi Arabia, where he said that his talks with King Salman of Saudi Arabia uh, leaves him very much convinced that the Saudis and others are are prepared to make peace. So he's he certainly, I think, is trying to use that at a level of generality. The real question is, is there work going on behind the scenes that is designed to begin to create parallel steps that the Israelis and the Arabs and the Palestinians could all be taking together as a way of showing that beyond the words, there's something practical that can actually be done, and it's too soon to know. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer. I'm speaking with Ambassador Dennis Ross, a William Davidson Distinguished Fellow and Counselor at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Ross has served in major foreign policy positions in four presidential administrations. Uh, most recently, Ambassador Ross served as Special Assistant to President Obama and National Security Council, Council Senior Director as a Special Advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Uh, he'll be in town to discuss 50 years after the Six-Day War, Where Are We in the Middle East, on Tuesday, May 30th at 7.30 p.m. at Congregation Sherry Zedek in Southfield. And Ambassador Ross, one thing that keeps coming back in my mind is sort of the contrast between what we know about handling diplomacy overseas, especially in situations like this, and Donald Trump's approach, both in the campaign and what we've seen so far during his presidency. I would I would think that these are incredibly delicate situations, and he is someone who is coming in approaching almost nothing in a delicate way, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I'm just curious about yeah. his public statements, about his uh, approach to both how he interacts with other people here in America and overseas, and sort of how that fits into what you would expect from a diplomat or someone who is handling such very sort of, uh, like I said, delicate situations overseas? Well, obviously, I think there's a, when you do diplomacy, a lot of it has to be handled uh, not just delicately, but with great discretion. Uh, on highly charged issues with the stakes very high, uh, having exposing one side or the other on a delicate issue or a sensitive issue before you can show what they're getting can create a kind of backlash that denies them their political capital they need to make big decisions. So, you know, it's not it's, diplomacy is not just what you say publicly. It's also how you handle the, uh, the sensitive issues privately. I would say that if you look at how he's performing on the trip, he shows that he can obviously uh, be disciplined when he's, when he's uh, dealing with foreign leaders overseas. So, you know, there may be a, a you know, I, I think one has to view it that way. Generally, tweets are probably not going to be something that are going to help you out. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, he's not tweeting on this trip. So, right. you know, maybe there's a contrast here between what his what allowed him to become president domestic, domestically and, and how he's operating as a president when he's overseas. I, I just sort of assume that someone who's been involved in this issue for so long, you have to wake up every morning sort of bracing yourself for what you're going to see on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, 
Well, I pay attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it there. Yeah, you know, what I'm curious about is how much do the—I know that this is, a, a like you said, a, a dual thing, that you say one thing publicly. That's sort of a tool you can use. Another tool is, is how you handle things privately. But how much do your public statements as someone involved in these issues— uh, determine your credibility for people overseas. I mean, let's take, for example, what Donald Trump had been saying on the campaign trail about Saudi Arabia. Uh, very yeah. critical. And then now uh, that's his first stop on his first trip overseas as president, and he's taking a very different tone. What does that do to the relationship coming in? Well, obviously, in the case of the Saudis, they have welcomed him as if he were like royalty. Uh, and I think the main reason for that is because he's not Obama, and they saw Obama as uh, pivoting away from America's willingness to play a kind of role in the region that we had historically. And they also perceived him to be looking at Iran as part of the solution to the problems of the region, not the source of the problems of the region. So their readiness to be open to him was quite high, notwithstanding some of the statements that were made during the campaign. And obviously, he seems to have uh, created a connection there on this trip. Now, in the end, for any president, not just this one, for any president, ultimately what they do is going to count for more than what they say. Uh, so, you know, it, this is early in the administration. Everyone, once the president becomes a president after being a candidate, everyone is uh, is going to be open and try to build a relationship, and then they're going to they'll make judgments based upon what is what is actually done. So, I think here again, they're happy that. He seems to be, at least rhetorically, taking a very different approach. And practically, by coming to Saudi Arabia first, in the end, it's not just the Saudis, but others will judge us on what we do and not just on what we say. And by the way, that's not a bad standard. That's We should be judging others, not just on what they say, but also what they do. Mm. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, and I'm speaking with Ambassador Dennis Ross. Right now, he is a William Davidson Distinguished Fellow and Counselor at the Washington Institute for Near East Policies. He's worked uh, he's worked in several major foreign policy positions in four presidential administrations, uh, recently serving with uh, President Obama as a special assistant. Uh, also a special advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and he will be in town to discuss 50 years after the Six-Day War, Where Are We in the Middle East, on Tuesday, May 30th at 7.30 p.m. at Congregation Sherry Zedek in Southfield. And Ambassador Ross, uh, I, I, I want to sort of uh, kind of wrap up what we're talking about with this trip in the Middle East with sort of... Um, the the idea of what you sort of hope to see from President Trump going forward after this. I mean, you know, clearly uh, he's 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 sort of setting up in many ways his relationships overseas. He's already reached out to uh, Bibi Netanyahu in in Israel. He is he's been meeting with Palestinian leaders. He's he's talking with a lot of the major players in the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia. Um, how has he set himself up, and, and what kind of what are some of the steps you you'd like to see him take going forward? Well, I think he's set himself up as someone who has started by creating a connection or a relationship, which is fine. That's the way oftentimes it should be. Uh, one of the mistakes that, that President Obama made was not doing that with the Israelis. Uh, he made a trip to the region, and he didn't go to Israel, and the message it sent to the Israeli public was the outreach to the Arabs and the Muslims was going to come at Israel's expense, and he never recovered from that. 
Uh, had he gone to Israel uh, in June of 2009, as opposed to waiting until March of 2013, and made some of the statements he made in March of 2013, the relationship with the Israeli public would have been different. And that relationship has an effect on Israeli prime ministers. So building a relationship with the Israelis and the Israeli public uh, makes sense to start. The same with the Arabs, it makes sense to start. The real question now is, how do you build on that? What comes next? If you're going to try to do something between the Israelis and the Palestinians, you really need to have a series of, of quiet steps. I mean, an example being uh, on the Israeli side that they would they would commit in private to him, and then at a certain point it would be revealed publicly that they will not build outside the settlement blocks. Mm -hmm. Building in the blocks is consistent with a two-state outcome. Building outside the blocks is not. Having the Palestinians stop funding, agree to stop funding the Martyrs Foundation, which literally rewards the families of those uh, who have members who have tried to kill Israelis or and have built killed in the process or are in jail. And you know, the longer their the longer their jail term, the more their family gets in terms of money. Well that's hardly the way to legitimize peace. So, you know, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see the Arab states be prepared to uh, send delegations openly, those that don't have peace with Israel, meaning Saudi Arabia, the Emirates and others send delegations to Israel openly to discuss security issues that they may be discussing privately as a way of saying Israel is part of the region and we're going to work on common threats, which they may be doing practically in private, but won't, but they're not prepared to acknowledge it. Here's a way you begin to actually change the baseline and change the, the context. And so what isn't possible today in terms of ultimate peacemaking becomes, becomes much more thinkable. So I guess my question is, do you, do you have confidence that someone like Donald Trump either has the knowledge base of the history of the region, of the history of these talks and efforts that have been made in the past, knowledge of what the very, very delicate tensions are in the Middle East, and has surrounded himself with the right people to execute this in a way that's effective. I, I think that it's, it's fair to say that he's demonstrated a number of times that um, maybe he is not quite up on the history of this situation. Well, not every president has been who has shown an interest. Uh, I think the question is, does he have people around him who can act on this and then bring him in at critical moments? Um, well, my impression of Jason Greenblatt, who is a person who has a day-to-day -day responsibility, is that he's serious, he's thoughtful, and he's approaching this uh, in a careful, diligent way. Obviously, the proof's in the pudding. Uh, and the fact that this conflict hasn't been solved up until now suggests that it's it's deeply rooted and the gaps are real and they can't be wished away. Uh, so it'll take a serious effort. But again, the fact that you do have this quiet Israeli-Arab cooperation means you have a different asset than you ever had before. The Arabs have never played a role, a serious role in peacemaking. Mm. Uh, they have oftentimes used the conflict, but they rarely tried to resolve it. If they're prepared to play more of a role, well, that gives you something else to work with, and and maybe that that gives us a reason to be hopeful. But it's early. Uh, I'm someone who's worked in this for a long time, so I prefer to see the glass half full rather than half empty. Sure, and it seems like this is something that every modern president, uh, at least in 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 recent memory, has come in. 
uh, at least saying that this is one of their priorities or that it's something that they're very seriously going to work on. We've come so close a couple of times, uh, at least it seems like we've come so close in, in my lifetime. But it really is something that has been elusive to almost to, to every administration that's tried. Look, I, having written a book uh, called Doomed to Succeed, the U.S.-Israeli relationship from Truman to Obama, I have gone through and, and, and explored each of these things in a way that each of the efforts in a way that explains what was tried and why it failed. So it offers lessons from the past. And I hope that this administration will will learn some of those lessons. Hmm. Uh, you're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Jake Neer, and I'm speaking right now with Ambassador Dennis Ross, a William Davidson Distinguished Fellow and Counselor at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, someone who's held uh, very major foreign policy positions uh, over the course of four presidential administrations, and he'll be in town soon to discuss 50 years after the Six-Day War, Where Are We in the Middle East? on Tuesday, May 30th at 7.30 p.m. at Congregation Sherry Zedek in Southfield. Uh, Ambassador Ross, before I let you go, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, and before we talk a little bit about your event here in Southfield, too, uh, I would be remiss to not talk a, a little bit and ask you if this most recent uh, attack in uh, England, if, if you think that that is something that's going to either complicate or uh, have, have effects, sweeping effects with our uh, Middle East foreign policy. Uh, it, you know, this is just sort of the latest in a series of attacks uh, in Europe um, that, that ISIS has taken credit for. What, what do you anticipate the reaction and the uh, ripple effect to be from that? Well, look, it's a, it's a reminder that the Islamic State uh, as they call themselves, is not just going to disappear, even if, as will be the case within within the next couple of months, it's both defeated and removed from Raqqa in Syria and defeated and removed from Mosul uh, in Iraq. This is a way of saying that they're still going to be around, they're still going to be here. It highlights, I think, what President Trump was trying to do in his visit in Saudi Arabia in the speech he he gave to about 50 Arab and Muslim leaders that this ideology that is embodied by ISIS is one that has to be discredited. You can't just defeat it militarily. You have to discredit the idea so that it doesn't have an appeal to, to those who feel bereft or who feel disconnected or who feel alienated and left out, which seems to be the ones who are most likely drawn to it still important to sort of discredit this as as any kind of legitimate idea uh, and the kind of education that needs to take place, the kind of, I would say, uh, the secular voices that raise questions about this or reformist elements within Islam who challenge it, needs to, these need to be encouraged uh, by, uh, by Muslim leaders. In the end, we can't discredit ISIS. No non-Muslim can discredit it, only Sunni Muslims can, because they claim to speak for the Sunni Muslims. So I think this is just a reminder of this is not a challenge or a threat that's going to easily disappear or disappear soon. Uh, so so I do want to ask you about uh, your trip to Detroit coming up again on Thursday, May 30th uh, at 7.30 p.m. at the Congregation Sherry Zedek. The, the title of the talk is 50 Years After the Six-Day War, Where Are We in the Middle East? Uh, talk, talk about what people can expect if they, uh, they come out to uh, Southfield for this talk. Well, what I want to do is I want to explain what happened 50 years ago. 
some of its implications, uh, how the region changed in the aftermath of it, but also how different the region is today uh, from that time. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit, as I said, not just about all of the daunting challenges, but also some of the new developments that gives us a reason to think that notwithstanding uh, how difficult and daunting things look, there are some possibilities at the same time. It, it seems like um, so much of the conversation lately politically um, has become sort of cynical, especially around Middle East policy, it seems like. Uh, it, it, I, I, the number of people that I've spoken with recently seem to be very insistent about trying to combat cynicism and, and sort of resulting apathy that follows uh, toward issues like this. It sounds like that's sort of where you're coming from as well. Well, I'm a big believer that, you know, one of the biggest challenges we face, certainly in Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, is how do you how do you restore a sense of possibility and belief? It doesn't exist today, and that's one of the, the greatest challenges. You can't make peace if nobody believes in it. Uh, 